Good morning. How y'all doing? <laughs> we don't need that introduction slide. It's fine. Everybody just hum a little. There's Larry. There's Larry. All right, I'm up here. So as uh, Lucas was so nice to point out, I am the eldest elder here at Cornerstone. And assistant pastor, you probably say, that, that don't look like Mike. You're right. I'm better looking. But anyway, Mike is on vacation, and it, it, I drew the short straw. So I'm here to uh, take us through a, a really neat study. Um, I don't know if you all knew, but in August, I took a sabbatical. And uh, it was really weird. I never had an entire month where I got to choose what I did. And uh, I, I was, I'm a recovering workaholic, so it was a real um, challenging time for me. But by the time I got through it, I didn't want to come back. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but one of the things that I was um, led to study while I was there was this um, title called The Tabernacle. And uh, I just want to share with you and uh, promise you, if we get through this, this message could change your life. And that's really what we're all about here on Sundays, and, and well, all the time, Billy, is um, life change. We, we don't just come to check in and check the to-do list. But uh, we want to see change in our own lives and in, in your all's lives. So um, how many of you are married? Oh, most of you, that's good. Um, people will often say that the, most, the person that keeps you the most humble in life is your spouse. And, and while that does hold an element of truth, if you have an older brother, you know that he's really the person that will keep you the most humble. I have an older brother. And... and God love him. Yesterday I was talking to him about this message, and he goes, what are you going to do to wake everybody up? <laughs> and I'm like, what do you mean? This is a great message. And he goes, yeah, right. <laughs> he said, you're going to lose everybody in the first five minutes. So rather than keep the message down to five minutes, we're going to go really fast through this. I started to change the name of this message to Fast and Furious, but I thought I might get in trouble patent laws and everything like that. And I thought about fast and faithful, but um, while that, we are going to hold true to that, we're going to be talking about the tabernacle. And uh, the tabernacle was, was really designed by God thousands of years ago, but it still holds some significant truths for us today. And that's what we want to get at. And I hope that you all um, have pretty much a, a life-changing epiphany like I did as God led me through this study. So um, we're going to go to the first slide. Um, and if you know anything about the tabernacle, it wasn't just a tent, but that's what it was. It was a, some people say it was a mobile temple. It was a portable temple. Think of if you had a tent, and everywhere you went, you took that tent and you set it up, and, and that's where God was going to sleep. That's where God was going to stay while you were traveling. That's kind of what this was. Um, not that God was sleeping, but this is where God was. This is where the, the priest and Moses and the people could come to be before God. So our first uh, bullet is furnishing God's house. What were the furnish, furniture that was in God's house or the elements? What, what was going on in God's house? So um, the first scripture that we're going to read, and I'm going to go really fast through this Old Testament scripture because there's a lot of it. And it took me days, literally, to cut these scriptures down enough that we could get through this today. I, I mean, we could probably spend six weeks 
studying the tabernacle, but we want to condense it all and just get to the good stuff, right? So anyway, in Exodus 25, verse 8 through 9, God said, Have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. The Hebrew words that God used is uh, mikdas, for a place that is holy. Shahan is a place that I may dwell. He's talking about himself. I'm going to dwell in this place. And probably the most important word, as far as I'm concerned, is tavek. You know, I'm not saying it, I'm sure, with the, the Jewish emphasis, tavek. But it means among them. So what God was basically saying, I mean, think of how revolutionary this was compared to any other supposed God throughout history. As he said, I'm going to live among you. And I want you to build this place, and I'm going to live there. And wherever you go, take it with me, or take it with you, and I will be there. So just remember, though, that he said, according to the pattern, I will show you. Now, Moses is up on the mountain, Mount Sinai, and there's a lot going on up there. But God spoke to him, and one of the things he did was give them the blueprints for this tabernacle. So I want to take a, a look, if you can pull them up, the first slide. What, what they have in Israel nowadays is a recreation, a replica of that exactly life-size of that tabernacle. And this is what it looked like. So he had a fence or an outer courtyard. There was one entrance, the east gate. Let me see if I can go over here a little bit. The first thing you see when you go into the tent is there's this uh, altar. This is where the sacrifices took place. And it was four-horned. It was made of wood, but then it was plated so that it wouldn't burn up. And then after that, there was the bronze laver, I guess is how you say that word, and that's where the priests would wash their hands. And then you get to this tent that I was talking about, and this is called the holy place. And no one could go in there but the priest. And there's certain pieces of furniture in there as well. And then inside the tent, there's a curtain. Like in my tent, I've got a curtain between me and where my dogs sleep. Now, it is useless because the dogs go right under it, but... You did not want to go under this curtain. Only the priests could go through the curtain once a year, and he, he took sacrifice for all the people. So anyway, that's kind of the general outline of the temple, or the tabernacle. Remember, the tabernacle and the temple were almost the same thing, except for the tabernacle that they built later, that Solomon built, was permanent. And it was, he made everything on a higher, bigger level. But it was still kind of laid out exactly like this. The same elements were there. So the tabernacle was the first place of residence that God had to make. Let's go to the next slide. So he, here, as you're walking in, this is real, but it's not like the things that are in there aren't solid gold and such, you know. But they were made of acacia wood, and they were plated. And these were all life-size. You can go and see this if you go to the, I think it's the Negev Desert in Israel. And there's the altar, and then there's a labor for washing, and the tent all around the courtyard. Go to the next slide. And this is inside the holy place. You see the table here with the bread on it. There's 12 loaves of bread. And over on the left, there's a lampstand. There's a, a wax figures, I guess, of the priest. And then you see a little gold platform in the back there. That's the altar of incense. And then there's the curtain, the veil, into the holy of holies. Go to the next slide. Now this is what's inside the holy of holies. This is what uh, they were after in the Raiders of the Lost Ark, <laughs> if you've seen that movie. you got the Ark of the Covenant. The base 
is all one piece, the rectangle is all made out of solid gold. And then the, the top piece is a cover that sits down on it. And those, those uh, angels or those cherubim were actually part of the cover. They sat on it. And God said in the scripture that he would meet Moses and talk to him from the mercy seat right there between the angels. So you, inside the ark, you've got the stone tablets, Aaron's rod, and the jar of manna. But the one thing that God said to put in there was the stone tablets. That was the most important thing for him. So there you kind of have a general idea of what the tabernacle looks like. Let's, uh, let's move on. So what we're doing, we're going to go, as I said, we're going to go through time from then right up until now and see, how, what does this all mean to me? Why is this important? See, I learned this stuff in seminary, and even then I was just like, well, that's cool, but that's history. You know, history class, some people like it, some people don't. But these elements have eternal significance. Not that they are holy of themselves, but because, what did I say at the start? God took Moses, and he showed him the template for a reason. So let's jump in. Let's go to uh, Exodus 25, 10 through 11. And like I said, I'm going to go real fast, but I'll try not to talk too fast because I lose people, like my wife. But anyway, Exodus 25, 10 through 11. Have them make an ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long, a cubit and a half wide, and a cubit and a half high. Overlay it with pure gold, both inside and out, and make a gold molding around it. So that's at the base of that ark. And then in verse 16, we jump ahead. He said, put in the ark the tablets of the covenant law that I will give you. So it wasn't like he had Moses make up laws. He said, I'm going to give you the laws, that, the covenant laws, and I'm going to give you the arks or the tablets, and I want you to put them in the ark. And then uh, we'll move forward to verse 17 and 18. He said, make an atonement cover of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and a cubit and a half wide, and make two cherubim out of hammer gold at the ends of the cover. Now, I, I was kind of curious. I just kind of looked this up on, as a side note. Why did everything have to be gold? You know, it, everything it seemed like was made of acacia wood, and then it was covered with gold or bronze. And, and so I looked it up, and gold in its purest form does not tarnish. So here you are, and, and this is mobile, you know, ta temple, tabernacle, and it's going to be exposed to the elements. You know, and so, it, like, I have, I think I'm in my probably 15th or 16th tent that I've owned right now. They just don't last. But God had them make all this out of quality materials and, and the gold so that it will last because he knew something they didn't know, that they were going to be in the wilderness a long time, and they needed him to be with them. All right, let's move forward to verse 22. He said, There above the cover between the two cherubim, that are over the Ark of the Covenant, I will meet with you and give you all my commands for the Israelites. So he, he, he was telling Moses, I'm going to give you more than just the tablets of stone that are in the Ark. I've got some commands, I've got some laws that I want you all to follow. And then in verse 23, he says, um, I need you to build a table, again, of acacia wood. And in verse 30, he said, put the bread of the presence of God on that table. And it's to be before me at all times. Now, one thing we know from uh, Jewish tradition is that they changed out the bread every seven days. So it was good for an entire week. It was the bread of the presence. And then after seven days, they replaced it. So what did the bread of the presence signify in the tabernacle? There were 12 loaves. There was, there was one for each tribe of Israel. And uh, this, 
tradition has it that the symbolic um, symbolism of it is that God was saying, I'm your provider. I'm going to give you provision for every day of the week for every tribe. And so this bread of the presence signified that God was there taking care of them. And then they provided the bread and gave it back as an offering to him. It's kind of funny. You know, that's one of the things that you see throughout the Bible is that we're all the time giving God stuff that he made, that he created. But he asked us to do that, to give our first fruits as really just a recognition of the fact that he is our provider, that we are trusting him, that he owns everything and he has given us everything for our good. So we're moving forward to verse 31. And remember in the, in the one slide you saw the lampstand. And there's seven forks in the lampstand, one in the middle and three on either side. And those are said to represent the branches of human knowledge with God in the center. And that light was to light their way. And the menorah also symbolized the creation in seven days with the center light representing the Sabbath, the Sabbath rest. So now we're really getting into the good stuff. In verse 26, or chapter 26, verse 31, God says, Make a curtain of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and finely twisted linen with cherubim woven into it by a skilled worker. Later on we find out he gave the skill to the workers. He anointed them to create these things. And then jumping to verses 33 and 35, hang the curtain from the class and place the Ark of the Covenant Law behind the curtain. The curtain will separate the holy place from the most holy place, or the holy of holies. Put the atonement cover on the Ark of the Covenant Law in the most holy place. Place the table outside the curtain on the north side of the tabernacle and put the lampstand opposite on the south side. Okay, we'll move forward. I told you there's a lot here, but I've condensed it as much as I can. This is all going to become super important. Moving forward to um, Exodus 27, verse 1. God says, build an altar of acacia wood, three cubits high. It is to be square, five cubits long, and five cubits wide. And as I said, acacia wood was used in almost all the furniture in the tabernacle because it's very strong, it's dense, it's mold-resistant, and it's fire-resistant. It's not fireproof, but it's fire-resistant. So once you plated it with something, it wasn't going to catch on fire. So basically, he was having to make these things to last. Okay, we move forward to um, verse 9 of chapter 27. He said, make a courtyard. We saw that, that outer courtyard, all those curtains. So it, it wasn't like the tent was just there and anybody could see it or walk up to it. The people, the common people, could only come in that main entrance and they could come up to the priest and, and present their offering. They could never go into the Holy of Holies or into the holy place. All right, jumping forward to uh, verse 20, 21. He said, command the Israelites to bring you clear oil of pressed olives for the light, so the lamps may be kept burning. They were to burn nonstop. Aaron and the other priests were to keep them burning. And he said, this is to be a lasting ordinance among the Israelites for the generations to come. All right, now we're going to jump a little bit farther forward to Exodus chapter 29, verses 38 and 39. He said, this is what you to offer on the altar regularly each day. This is every day of the year. Two lambs a year old, offer one in the morning and offer one at twilight. Think about that. I mean, what if we did that just in Galax? Every day of the year, somebody here had to bring 
two lambs for the sacrifice. That's what they had to do. And why did they have to do that? For their sin, for their transgressions. You know, that's one thing about the Israelites. Because of their exposure to God and His holiness, I mean, think about it. They saw Him, cloud by day, fire by night. They knew, really. They didn't even try to deceive themselves into thinking that they were good people. They knew that deep down they needed God. They needed sacrifice for their sins. So every day they had to make these sacrifices. And he says in uh, chapter 29, verses uh, 42 through 45, For the generations to come, this burnt offering is to be made regularly at the entrance to the tent of the meeting before the Lord. There I will meet with you and speak to you. There also I'll meet with the Israelites, and the place will be consecrated for my glory. So I will consecrate the tent of the meeting and the altar, and will consecrate Aaron and his sons to serve me as priests. Then I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. And then we're almost done with these scriptures. Um, in chapter 30, verse 17 through 20, he said, as far as the um, basin for washing, after the sacrifices, the priests you know, bloody hands and whatnot. And he said, uh, make a bronze basin, in, in verse 18, with its bronze stand for washing. Place it between the tent of the meeting and the altar and put water in it. Aaron and his sons are to wash their hands and feet with water from it. Whenever they enter the tent of the meeting, they shall wash with water so that they will not die. So God didn't want them coming all bloody before him. And in uh, chapter 30, verse 3, he says, Make an altar of acacia wood for burning incense. Remember I showed you that rectangle box that was an, the altar of incense. And in verse 6, he says, Put the altar of incense in front of the curtain that shields the Ark of the Covenant Law before the atonement cover that is over the tablets of the Covenant Law, where I will meet with you. He says this repeatedly through all these instructions, is this is where I'm going to meet with you. Remember that statement for later, where I will meet with you. It's going to be on the test that you'll get at the end. All right, almost done. Now, in Exodus chapter 30, verse 34 through 35, there's mention of the incense that goes in the incense altar. Verse 34, Then the Lord said to Moses, Take fragrant, fragrant spices, gum resin, I'm not even going to try to say those two words, and pure frankincense, all in equal amounts, and make a fragrant blend of incense, the work of a perfumer. So he's going to have incense on the altar, and he's even told them how to make the incense and what to include in it. An interesting thing there, it's kind of like a recipe for making the incense. God says in that statement as well, he says, don't anybody else make this for your home use. You may like the way it smells, but don't make it for your home use. This is holy, this is separate, this is just for God's, God's house. So, okay, we got through that. Whew. I didn't want to bore you with all the details. I couldn't even tell you how much a cubit is, to be honest with you. It's, I don't know. We'll just make it up. But anyway, all this is really important, and that's surprising. Even my brother didn't believe it. But we're going to go to our next slide, and our next point is, your prayers do reach heaven. Now, how do I go from the description of the holy temple, or tabernacle, to this subject, your prayers reach heaven. Well, let's go back through the furniture for just a minute. Remember that altar of incense that we just talked about? In Psalm 141, verse 2, listen to this. Let my prayer, this is the psalmist talking to God, let my prayer be counted as incense before you, and the lifting of my hands as the evening sacrifice. So the psalmist, anointed by God, is saying, 
when I pray to you, let it be as incense. And then you may have heard this scripture before, if any of you uh, are in eschatology in the study of end times. In Revelation chapter 5, verse 8, he said, uh, When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So in the heavenly places, our prayers are rising before God like incense. It's a pleasing thing to God. Our prayers are reaching heaven. Isn't that good to know? You know, you hear some people say sometimes that, man, it feels like the ceiling is brass, the skies are brass. But the truth is, our prayers do get to heaven. And God cherishes them. So if they are reaching heaven and they're pleasing, we have to ask ourselves a few questions about our prayers. How do we know what to say to God? What should we ask for from God? We, we don't want to ask for things that really aren't appropriate, but we don't always know. What shouldn't we ask for? for? Sorry, I, my accent comes in. What shouldn't we ask for? And how do we address God in our prayers? Those are, those are some interesting questions. We have a, a prayer time here once a week on Tuesdays, and uh, some people will t- tell me the reason that they don't come to it be- is because they don't want to pray out loud. They're concerned that their prayers will be inappropriate, or they, they don't know how to pray, or they'll be embarrassed. And I'll tell you, you know, Paul said that God, uh, the Holy Spirit will teach us how to pray. But God just wants us to be honest before him. I mean, you think about it, if you come in before God, there isn't anything he doesn't know about you. You know, there isn't any part of your life that he hasn't seen. So let's just be real with him. You know, one of the reasons that I can get up here and talk is because I know most of y'all. And you don't, you know, I can't take myself serious because you know me. <laughs> you know, I am nothing without God and without God's spirit. I mean, I was on the highway to hell, like they say. God can lift us up. He can change us. And he gets all the credit for it. So we want to give our first fruits, just like that bread. We want to give it back to God. And sometimes we have to ask him when we need help, when we don't know what to do, when we need wisdom. So let's talk about prayer a little bit. Jesus told us how to pray. In Matthew 6, a lot of you know this. When the disciples asked Jesus, well, how do we pray? What should we pray about? He says in verse 9, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, so this is who you're addressing, this is who you're talking to. Hallowed be your name, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, our provision. Forgive us our debts or our sins, as we have also forgiven our debtors, those that have sinned against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Think about the scripture. Leave this up for a little bit. He's saying, so you're talking to the Father. Jesus is saying, this is how you pray. Recognize that God is holy. He's not like us. He's capable of answering our prayers. And the very first thing that he says we should pray is that your kingdom come, your rule come in our lives. Let your will be done in our lives just as it is in heaven. Are we willing to allow that? Are we, are we willing to allow God to rule in our lives? He gives us that choice. Isn't that amazing? He gives us the choice to say your will be done. 
We don't have to say that. We can say, I believe in you, but I still want to do things my way. But Jesus is highly suggesting here <laughs> that we pray this way and that we mean it. And then he, he doesn't apologize for saying, God, help us. We need food. We need shelter. Give us our daily bread. Daily, every single day, take care of us. Just like in the tabernacle, there was bread for all the tribes. There was enough. Remember what Jesus could do with bread? <laughs> you know, a couple of fish and bread, and they feed as many people. as It, it wasn't limited to 5,000 or 10,000, however many were, were there to hear him preach. He said it was just 5,000 men. So, I mean, there's no math that's going to make that work. That's heavenly math. That's the only way that's possible for God to take care of us. And forgive us our debts or our sins, the things that we owe, just as we forgive those who have sinned against us or that might owe us something. You know, it's interesting, after this prayer, Jesus kind of went on to qualify that about forgiveness. He said, for us to really receive forgiveness, we have to forgive others. We have to be willing to give the same thing that we want to get. It's so easy to be judgmental and self-righteous until we need mercy. And Jesus is saying, hey, in your prayers to God, make sure that you forgive just like you want to be forgiven. And then he, goes, he ends with saying, lead us not into temptation, guide us. Keep us out of trouble and deliver us from the evil one. You know, in Matthew uh, chapter 6, Jesus went on later on and he said, Don't worry, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, but your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. There's that word kingdom again. Jesus talked a lot about the coming kingdom, didn't he? What was he talking about? He was talking about the coming rule, the rule of God. And seek not just the kingdom. How are you supposed to seek the kingdom? You know, Jesus was really good at speaking in parables, and he wanted us to think about it, to meditate on them. And then he says, seek his righteousness. I looked up the word righteousness, and it literally means right way of doing things. So what we're supposed to seek, and this does take a lot of work, is God's way of doing things. Remember the bracelets people used to have? What would Jesus do, WWJD? The only problem with those was that if you just approach that from a cognitive level, you might not really know what God would do. <laughs> you know, we, need his spirit. we need his spirit to guide us into righteousness, to do the good works that he'll have us to do. Because honestly... You know, you can't do everything that's out there. There's so many needs. I mean, I get requests for money and charitable donations and, and requests for my time all the time. You can't do them all. You need to be led by the Holy Spirit. How are we doing on time? If you're a parent, you know that you have your child. You can't give them everything that they want, can you? But you will give them everything they need. You'll make sure that they're fed, they're clothed, that they're safe. They may not always like the way you do it either. They may want different food. They may want different clothes, nicer clothes. They may want to do different activities that aren't necessarily safe. But your job as a parent, especially when they're really little, is to keep them safe and teach them a little bit about, how making, about making good choices. That's what God wants us to do. 
He wants us to make good choices. He doesn't want us to always just think, what would Jesus do? He wants us to know what Jesus would do for ourselves. He doesn't want us to be totally ignorant. We'll never not need the breath of life that God gives us. But hopefully we will learn to be like Christ. So thinking about the tabernacle then, just do you remember those slides of the tabernacle and what was inside and outside of the tabernacle? Let's read a couple of things that Jesus said about himself. These are very significant. First, Jesus said in, in John 6, 35, he said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Remember the bread in the tabernacle? Jesus is saying, I will be your provider. I am your provision. You don't have to look anywhere else. I know you have need of these things. You know what else Jesus said? In John chapter 8, verses 12, he says, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in the darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. Remember in the tabernacle, the lampstand? Imagine going into that tabernacle at night with no light. I mean, even when you go camping, you have a flashlight. God wants us to know the way. Now, he doesn't always get a spotlight out and shine it down the highway and say, see, see that way over there? That's where you're going. No, a lot of times it's right here. You know, you've got to take a little baby steps. Remember the movie, What About Bob? You're taking baby steps, and God leads us along. It's an oil lantern, not a spotlight, but he still wants to lead us. And Jesus said, I am the light of life. I will lead you. What else did, was said about Jesus? John said, when he saw Jesus come, and he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You don't have to go every day, morning and night, and offer sacrifices for sin. He did it one time. And the reason he was able to do it is because he was sinless. So all the sins of every person that ever lived was put on him. And it could have only been put on him because he was the only one that was sinless. And then he died for us. He took our place. The Lamb of God. Go to the next slide. The kingdom of God is at hand. Remember I said that Jesus is always talking about the kingdom of God? The more you read the New Testament, you'll see reference after reference about the kingdom of God. And we've learned now that it means the rule of God, God's kingdom in our lives. Paul, the writer of Hebrews, talked about the kingdom of God quite a bit. In Colossians chapter 1, he says, giving th joyful thanks to the Father. He was talking about praying. And he said, I'm giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. Whose kingdom? God's kingdom. Jesus is the light of the world. For he, God, has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I'll tell you one of the most important, powerful, life-changing things that, are, that is in the Bible. It's in Matthew 27. Two little short sentences. I'm going to read them to you. Matthew 27, 50 and 51. And when Jesus had cried out in a loud voice, this is when he's on the cross, he gave up his spirit. 
And at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. What, what curtain was torn in two? The curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. So what does that mean? It means that access for the priest was now possible. Not just once a year, but at any time. They went in the holy place, they could go in to the Holy of Holies. And there's the Ark of the Covenant, where God was. I'm just going to read a little bit of this next scripture, Hebrews 10, verses 8 through 22. Christ said, you did not want animal sacrifices or sin offerings or burnt offerings or other offerings for sin, nor were you pleased with them. Instead, he said, look, I have come to do your will. He cancels the first covenant that had all those laws and the sacrifices that were required, and he put the second covenant into effect. For God's will was to, for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Under the old covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar, which we showed you earlier, day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never take away our sins. But our high priest, Jesus, offered himself to God, a single sacrifice for sins, good for all time. And then he sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand. Now remember where God was? On the mercy seat, between the cherubim. Now Jesus is there too. Moving on to verse 16. This is the new covenant that I will make with my people on that day, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts, and I will write them on their minds. And in verse 17, he says, I will never again remember their sins or lawless deeds. And when sins have been forgiven, there is no need to offer any more sacrifices. So here's the kicker. This is what we've been trying to get to. Verse 19. And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven, heaven's most holy place, because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trust in him. For our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean, and our bodies have been washed with pure water. And like I said, I was studying this a little bit during my sabbatical, and uh, I came across uh, a book by... Uh, A.W. Tozer, who was a pastor and a Christian author, and let me read what he has to say about this and about the Israelites. For 400 years, Israel had dwelt in Egypt, surrounded by the crassest idolatry. By the hand of Moses, they were brought out at last and started towards the land. The very idea of holiness had been lost to them. Sound familiar? To correct this, God began at the bottom. He localized himself in the cloud and fire, and later, when the tabernacle had been built, he dwelt in fiery manifestation in the Holy of Holies. There were holy days, holy vessels, holy garments. There were washings, sacrifices, offerings of many kinds. Then came the great day when Christ appeared. And immediately he, Christ, began to say, You have heard that it was said by them of old time, but I say unto you. The Old Testament was school, and the schooling of the Old Testament was now over. When Christ died on the cross, the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. The Holy of Holies was opened to everyone who would enter by faith. Christ's words were remembered. The hour cometh when you shall neither in this mountain nor yet in Jerusalem worship the Father. But the hour cometh and now 
is when the true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is spirit, and they, worship, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So that's a whole lot of information. What do we do with it? We rush through the scriptures, and I apologize, but all of those elements are important because Jesus has replaced them. He is the bread of life, our provision. He is the light that guides us, that leads us through the power of the Holy Spirit. He is the word that God's put in our hearts. We have, if we go to the next slide, a new kingdom with a new tabernacle. And Jesus said, Jesus said in verse uh, 20 of Luke, the, king, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed. Remember, his disciples were saying, when's the kingdom coming? When is it coming? When are you going to take over? He said, nor will people say, here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. Remember, that's what the tabernacle was all about, that God came and lived in their midst. But now it's a different kind of living in our midst. Where is it? Remember the scripture we read earlier? This is the new covenant I will make with my people on that day, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. So where is God in all this? He's in our midst. He's right here. Think about that. The God who was on the mercy seat in the ark. And, you, and the normal person couldn't even go in there or they would die. You know, they used to tie a rope onto the high priest's leg so if he went in there before God and he, he had sin that they didn't know about and he died, they could pull him out because they couldn't go in after him. And this is the high priest. It's a crazy, powerful thing to be in the presence of God. And yet, that's exactly where he wants us, in his presence, day in, day out. Can you imagine if we had a tabernacle? I heard with Center 241. Uh, 242 is instead of that we built that replica of that tabernacle and that's where God was and you know when we got done here we go out there and one person could go in and talk to God for us and he'd get a list of our prayer requests we don't have to do that anymore God's in our midst in our minds in our hearts we need to remember that he has invited us to come into his presence what if we had a tent a tabernacle at our homes we walk out of the house and say, man, I really need something. I'm going to go talk to God about it. We don't have to do that. He's right there in your homes. He's in your heart. And his law is in your mind. You don't believe me? In 1 John, the apostle said, chapter 4, verse 12, No one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, God lives in us. And his love is brought to full expression in us. Isn't that really the most powerful thing that we do as Christians? That's why we reach out to the community so much here at Cornerstone. Because God's love is giving us the impetus to show his love to others. We can't help it. We might try to hide from it and say, I don't want to do that, that's such a hassle. But God just keeps pushing and saying, show them my love. In their deepest, darkest need, show them my love. In Ephesians chapter 3, Paul said, Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. 
And in Peter, the apostle, in 1 Peter 2, he said, You are coming to Christ, who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by people, but he was chosen by God for great honor. And you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. What's more, what's more you are his holy priest. Remember I said the priest could now go right through the holy place and into the holy of holies now? You're all God's priests too. A lot of times you want to put it off on me, on Mike, on one of the elders, one of the leaders of the church. You're God's priest too, if you've received him into your heart. If he's living in your heart by faith, you are God's priest. Think about that. What are you going to do about that? What are you going to do with that? Where does God want to live? In our midst. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, there's a lot of 316s in the Bible. You ever notice that? Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? You yourselves, you yourselves, you are God's temple. Not somebody else. You can't put it off on somebody else. Nobody can do that for you. You are God's temple. And he wants to live in your midst. As the worship team comes back up, I want us to uh, do a little exercise. We close our eyes. And we're going to enter the tabernacle. Bow your heads. Let's go into the courtyard of the tabernacle. And we see before us the altar. It requires sacrifice. But we can walk right on by this, the altar. Because Jesus has already been there. And he met the need that was required by that altar. Then we move on through the courtyard and we see the basin for cleansing. We can walk past there too because Jesus has cleansed us from all our sins. We see there's an outer curtain where only a priest may enter. But now we realize we are priests of God. We're a holy nation, God's very own possession. And we're able to enter, and we do. We enter. Now you're in the holy place. The candlesticks are on the left. The bread is on the table to the right. They remind us that Christ is our light and our sustenance. He is everything we need. He is our guide and he is our provider. You get there by faith. Moving on from that, you see the altar of incense. And you're able to approach it because you belong there now. Your prayers burn on that altar with the purifying fire of the Holy Spirit and are lifted as incense into the very presence of God. And the curtain that was there is ripped open. And you stand before the altar of incense, you're actually in the very presence of God. He's right before you, in the midst between the cherubim and the Holy of Holies. But all this is figures that God showed Moses on the mountain of what is in heaven. The kingdom of God is within us. And we can enter the tabernacle of his Holy Spirit every day. So as you remember what the tabernacle looks like, remember also that it's a spiritual thing. It was always just a pattern of what's in the spirit. And you can go there every day. You don't have to go somewhere. You don't have to set up a tent or make a replica. The veil that separates the holy of holies from all of us is torn asunder. And we can boldly, as the scripture says, enter the very presence of our God, our King, our Father, our friend and confidant. Every day and everywhere you are, 
because he is in our midst. So now as we pray, think about that. It's hard to remember sometimes that we're in the very presence of God. We don't have to earn our way in their presence any longer. Jesus has done that. He went before us. And he tore the curtain apart so that we could go before God. He cares for us. He loves us as our holy, heavenly Father. Let's just take a minute now and pray to him. Father, it's so good that we can come to you. That we don't have to have somebody else pray on our behalf. But that we can come to you ourselves because you are our Father. You are our God and our King. We ask that your kingdom come into our lives. That your will is done in our lives, in the lives of our family, our children, our homes, our church, our community, our nation, our world. The needs seem too great, Lord. But then we remember how holy and powerful, awesome you are. Nothing is too big for you. Fill us with your spirit, Lord, so that we can have faith to believe and trust in you. Thank you for what you've done with Jesus. Forgiving our sins, cleansing us, providing for us, lighting our way. Give us the knowledge and the wisdom that we need to proceed in the days to come. Help us to remember to come to you all the time, continually. We need your help, Lord. We worship you as we remember how much you love us and who you are to us and that you are in our midst. And now, Lord, we pray for revival in this land, in this country, in this church, in this community. We need more of you in our midst and the power of your Holy Spirit working in our lives. We pray for all the nations that know you and the ones that don't. We pray for Israel and the conflict that is there, but it's really an ongoing conflict as there is a battle between those that know you and those that think they know you. Everybody wants to be right, Lord, but only you are truly right. The rest of us know just a little bit, a little part of your truth. Oh, Lord, help us. Help us, God. Fill us with your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.